for the next couple weeks, we're doing something a little different here on The World According to Sound. We're running a nine-part series we made with KQED Public Radio, which ran on their news podcast, The Bay. It's about how America became a country of shareholder capitalism that prioritizes the profits of business owners over the well-being of workers and communities, even in the midst of a deadly pandemic. And while there is a lot of talking, especially for us, this isn't your typical public radio approach to storytelling. So here we go. How we got here, part one. The great risk shift from companies to workers. Larry's fond of being crazy loves it. Hello, hello, hello. Hello. Three, two, one. Erica Maghetto says the streets in Erica Maghetto says the streets in San Francisco are pretty empty right now. She's an Uber and Lyft driver, and even though there aren't many passengers, she's an Uber. <clears throat> okay. This is a recording of me tracking. That's just fancy public radio speak for recording the narration to a story. Even though there aren't many passengers, she's still out driving. Still out. Erica. The tracking's from a piece I did back in March of 2020, when the coronavirus was just starting to impact the Bay Area. And the story is about an Uber and Lyft driver. It was part of a whole series I was doing at the time about how the virus was affecting workers. And this story, it really messed me up. It made me angry and frustrated and depressed. About society, but also about journalism. For the last 10 years, I've been covering the impact of the tech industry on work and workers. Stuff like Uber and Lyft drivers having no employee benefits, and guys, and it's mostly guys, trying to make the next big app. As I quickly realized, I wasn't covering anything new. This was just the latest chapter in a much longer story. A story about how business owners and politicians have been for years disempowering and isolating workers. That is a story we have not been telling often enough or well enough. Now that story I did in March, it messed me up so much because when I heard it, I felt like this is one of my best pieces, but it's still only scratching the surface of that bigger story. And if you listen to the piece, you can hear all these moments, moments that could be gateways to that big, difficult to tell story of how workers in America are increasingly on their own do that and still earn a living. KQED's Sam Harnett has the story of one driver who's scared to be on the road, but says she has no other choice. Now, if you listen to public radio a lot, you've probably heard something like this. It's a profile of a worker struggling to get by. Erica Maghetto says the streets in San Francisco are pretty empty right now. She's an Uber and Lyft driver, and even though there aren't many passengers, she's still out there driving. I interviewed Erica in her car, right outside of the place I was renting. And she'd been working and stopped in between riders. The Bay Area hadn't even gone into shelter in place yet. And wearing masks was still a new thing for most people. So I have the surgical mask that the doctor gave me today. Uh, I got into the passenger side of Erica's car. It seemed like she'd just cleaned it. I asked her to describe what was in her car for listeners. I have my Lysol clean and fresh kills germs even when diluted and are rags. And then I have my mask. Um, that the doctor gave me today that she recommends that I wear, but I'm afraid to wear because I might scare people. 
The story has a lot of moments like this, moments that make you feel like you can understand Erica better, can empathize with her situation. But these personal details, they could have been the gateways to something deeper. The story of why wages are so low, why there are so few benefits like good health care, why there are such limited options for empowered, well-paying work. You can hear that story waiting to be told in each one of these little details. Erica's still working full-time. She's driving over 40 hours a week, but she's scared because she has a health condition. My heart condition is called supraventricular tachycardia. She had surgery 10 years ago. It's nerve-wracking. I haven't been monitored since 2010. I don't have a primary care practitioner nor nor a cardiologist or specialist that's monitoring me, so um, it's really scary. Why doesn't she have a doctor? Why is she just left on her own to worry about her health condition? Or why can't she find a more stable, fulfilling job? You can hear hints in this backstory of how Erica became a Lyft driver. Erica Maghetto is in her late 30s and used to be an accountant in Sacramento. Her last steady job was at a property management firm. It started as just bookkeeping, but then she says they began making her hound tenants for money and to evict people. So she left and started driving for Lyft. It was supposed to be temporary, but it's been three years now. Just got, like, sucked into it, and then they keep cutting your pay and cutting your pay and cutting your pay, and then the bills stack up and the credit card debt mounts, and then you have to get that clutch, and then you have to get that battery, and you just, you go from a paycheck-to-paycheck basis to a cash-out-to-cash-out basis. Erica's been without a permanent home for months. She sleeps on other people's couches and in hostels. Sometimes to save money after a late shift, she folds down the back seat, pulls out a pillow tucked in the spare tire cavity, and sleeps in her car. She's trying to scrape together money to get a new place. Every month is a struggle. She has $18,000 in credit card and car debt. PayPal wants their money. And uh, I got a reminder from Capital One wants their money today. So it's almost like... I just have no choice whatsoever, you know, and it's, it's, I'm running myself into financial despair. (laughs) At this point, I had almost all of the material I needed for the story, except an ending. So before I left Erica's car to go back inside my apartment, I asked her one last question. So what's your plan? Um, I do. I have help. There's people I'm, like, currently working on my resume right now. Someone sent the draft back today, so I'm really hopeful about that. Um, I don't see that people are going to be hiring in the next few weeks, um, but at least I'm making progress on that, and you just have to keep thinking about and, and doing things to kind of bring yourself out of the situation. Uh, when people ask how you're doing, like, it always makes me cry because... I appreciate the concern. It's it's lonely and it's terrible and it's... I've made a promise to myself to at least acknowledge the people on the side of the road asking for money because I'm scared I could be that person. We'd been sitting there in Erica's car for like 30 minutes. And even as I was asking that question, what's your plan? I knew it was rhetorical. I knew I was searching for an answer to finish my story, something forward-looking, a conclusion. But how could I ask her that after hearing everything she'd been through? She's working full-time and doesn't have a place to live. She had a better, more stable job, but they made her do terrible things to people, so she quit. 
and she hasn't been monitored for her health condition in 10 years. Getting feedback on a resume is not going to change any of that. Given how much is stacked against Erica, it's unfair to just ask, what's your plan? The question isn't what one worker is going to do in an unfair system. The question is why in this very wealthy country do so many people who work so hard have so little? How come if the economy slows down or there's a natural disaster or a pandemic, how come if you get sick or have an accident or need to take care of a family member, raise a child, when you face any of the realities of, you know, being alive, why are you so on your own in this country? And the problem is, the answer to these questions doesn't fit neatly into a conventional news story. You can't get at it with the profile of one person or the news of the day. You can't get at it by contrasting two opposite points of view and arriving at some middle truth. The answer won't come in a bite-sized piece of content that's designed to hold your attention so some media organization can make advertising revenue. After hearing my story about Erica on the radio, I started revisiting my old pieces, listening through for those little moments where the big story was peeking through. I started calling up academics and other smart people I'd interviewed over the years. Vast loss of wealth. I started pulling out books and essays, watching a lot of old TV and radio footage, political speeches, newsreels. Forces of labor staged last-minute demonstrations. I wanted to know more history, more context, more theory, more ways to help me understand what was going on. Old exploitation mediated There is a lot to unpack. But the story is actually really simple. Corporations have taken from workers to enrich shareholders and politicians have failed to stop them. Companies have done this by weakening unions, removing benefits, eliminating good jobs, and suppressing pay. And it's mostly been a slow, sneaky, undemocratic process that has happened over decades. It started as soon as workers won some power in the 1930s with the New Deal, and it really ramped up after the late 70s. This story is the story of how we became a country of shareholder capitalism, a country of so much inequality, where the elite benefit and tens of millions of people like Erica Maghetto struggle to survive every single day. In this series, we're going to try and answer some simple questions for workers, like why most don't have a union, why there are fewer and fewer good full-time jobs, why wages are so low and benefits are so bad, and why shareholders have made so much in profits while so little of it has gone to workers. In the first third of the series, we're going to look at what was taken away from workers and how. The middle is about who did the taking and what their justification was. And finally, we look at how all of this has affected society. And that's the point, to understand clearly how we got here. Because it's the way that workers were undermined that made people get hit so hard with this pandemic. It wasn't just because our public health response was inadequate. 
It's because our economic system prioritized owners over workers. Tens of millions lost their jobs. Tens of millions more were asked to keep working with no significant increase in wages, benefits, or protections, even though we called them essential workers. Millions of people suffered because we did not have the safety net to put unessential consumption on hold for even just one year. It does not have to be this way. It was not inevitable. And we're going to trace how it happened. So the next time someone says, oh, come on, this is just the way it is, or you're exaggerating, it's really not that bad. You can say, no, here's how bad it is. Here's how we let it get so bad. And here's how we could do better in the future. In the next episode, we look at how managers and executives made big changes to health insurance and retirement in recent decades, and how it happened in part because of tiny provisions in obscure laws. How We Got Here is made by KQED's Alan Montecilio, Chris Hoff, and Sam Harnett. So in this series, whenever you hear that sound, it means you're about to get something a little different. Throughout the series, we're going to bring you little sound pieces that build on the themes that we're touching on. You'll hear one in the middle of each episode and one at the end. The first of these little sound pieces is about one of the many writers and journalists who rang the alarm bells about the plight of workers in America. In 1906, Upton Sinclair published The Jungle, a book about immigrant workers in the slaughterhouses of Chicago. The rich people not only had all the money, they had all the chance to get more. And they had the knowledge and the power. And so the poor man was down, and he had to stay down. All day long, this man would toil thus, his whole being centered upon the purpose of making 23 instead of 22 and a half cents an hour. And then his product would be reckoned up by the census taker, and jubilant captains of industry would boast of it in their banquet halls, telling how our workers are nearly twice as efficient as those of any other country. If we are the greatest nation the sun ever shone upon, it would seem to be mainly because we have been able to goad our wage earners to this pitch of frenzy. They were wage earners and servants, at the mercy of exploiters whose one thought was to get as much out of them as possible, and they were taking an interest in the process, were anxious in case it should not be done thoroughly enough. Was it not honestly a trial to listen to an argument such as that? And yet, there were things even worse. You would begin talking to some poor devil who'd worked in one shop for the last 30 years and had never been able to save a penny, who left home every morning at six o'clock to go and tend a machine and come back at night too tired to take his clothes off who'd never had a week's vacation in his life, had never traveled, never had an adventure, never learned anything, never hoped anything.